You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Hi, you guys. There was a, uh, a recent article uh, published in the Washington Post uh, in the last year. It tells the story of a woman named Rachel. Rachel is a lively, opinionated, 25-year-old Midwestern woman. And Rachel says in the article that in most areas of her life, she feels pretty empowered, pretty emboldened, pretty in control of things, with one notable exception. One area of her life where she feels something isn't right. It's the area of sexual intimacy. And Rachel goes on in the article to list off a variety of really unhappy encounters she's had with potential partners. Times where she's consented to things out of a desire to be polite or please the other person, but things that weren't really life-giving to her. Times that she's been, uh, had extreme acts requested of her at times. And times where she's had uh, insults hurled her way in really intimate spaces. And over and over again, Rachel reports continued regret in her romantic pursuits. And that story, friends, is actually more, the, ex- uh, more the, the norm than the exception in our culture today. According to a recent Pew Research study, 67% of Americans right now say that their dating life is not going well. 67%. It's almost 7 out of 10 people you meet who say they're dating. It's not going well for them. 75% say it's extremely difficult or somewhat difficult to find someone of quality to date. There's a, a recent tweet that made the rounds. Tens of thousands of likes and retweets. I put it this way. I don't think older generations realize how terrifying, all caps, terrifying, dating is for the current generation. There's no commitment. Everyone talks about, let's see where this goes. There are no labels. Absolutely chaotic out here. (laughs) In true Twitterverse, right? Rachel, in this article, has a statement, verbatim. She says these words. It's not like I'm being forced into anything, and it's not like I feel unsafe, but it's just not good. It's just not good. And these sorts of stories and studies are revealing two major things to us about the state of romantic pursuits and relationships today. The first thing they're revealing to us is that we are more sexually liberated than we've been in American history. We've lived with the default assumption for a few decades now that sexual desire is actually this very personal thing and that if anybody outside of myself gives me any rules on how to control that or limit that, well, then that's inherently oppressive. And so we need to liberate sexuality in our culture. And that's what we've been doing for a long time. We've been passing laws and moving towards a culture to greater and greater freedom. That's the assumption. And most people in our culture agree that more sex and a variety of sex are good for you and that you should pursue those things fully and freely. And the standard now has functionally just become consent. In many states, that's the standard. As long as sex happens between two consenting adults, everything else is fair game. And some people have started to refer to that sort of sexual climate as hookup culture. I've got the definition of hookup culture behind me here. Hookup culture is the widespread acceptance of casual sex and physical intimacy that's entirely disconnected from relational commitment. And that sort of culture assumes that the other person is a means to my end. And it assumes that I'm a means to their end. That we are here and can have an intimate encounter and then dispose of one another. We can remove one another from our lives, and it doesn't really matter. It's actually a good thing that we don't have relational commitment in our intimacy together. 
That's the culture right now that we are living in. We are more sexually liberated than we've ever been, and we're also finding out that in the middle of that liberation, we are more relationally miserable than we've ever been. Right now, according to that same Pew Research study, more than half of single US adults polled say they've just given up on dating altogether. They're just done with it, because it's not worth it. It's too risky. They don't know the standards. They don't know what they're entering into. It's, it's too difficult. It's too challenging. Our lack of standards are actually leaving people with no other option than to just leave it behind altogether. According to another CNN study, people are having less sex now than they've had at any point since the sexual revolution began. We have more freedom and more ability to be sexually intimate with one another, and we're saying, nah, it's not worth it, because the standards aren't holding up for us. And it's in the middle of that dissatisfied culture that the author of this Washington Post article continues to interview some other folks. And she starts to ask, well, what sort of standards do you think should exist? What are the things that you think would resolve the state of dating and intimacy in our culture today? Here's what people say in the article. Listening. Care. Mutual responsibility. Father, we pray for uh, whatever's happening down the street right now, this ambulance that's driving by, fire truck that's driving by. We pray that you would keep people safe, that you would empower uh, the folks who are rushing to be first responders to incidents in our world, that you'd protect them and that everyone would be safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening, care, mutual responsibility. One person in the article just asked a rhetorical question. Can we not just love each other for a single day? Can we not just love each other for a single day? You guys, our world right now is longing for real, deep relational intimacy and the culture can't give it to them. The title of the Washington Post article is literally, We Need a New Sexual Ethic. And that's coming from a secular publication. It's coming from our culture. You don't have to hear that from a pastor. We need a new sexual ethic. Our culture is crying out for it. Liberation has not provided us freedom and life in ways that we expected. And as we continue in this sermon series, we're calling Non-Disposable. We're examining different assumptions that our culture has uh, that assume people are, or things are disposable. We're looking at the ways that Jesus charts a different way for us to life and to healing, that people and things actually aren't disposable. And today, we're going to look at hookup culture. The notion that other bodies are disposable means to my end. We're actually seeing how Jesus charts a radically different approach to sexuality and to intimacy. And I think it's much more robust, it's much more life-giving, it's much more transformative, and it's exactly the sexual ethic that our culture needs. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 27. Uh, so look for the big number 5 when you scroll through your Bible, uh, if you're on an app scrolling and flipping through your Bible. Uh, and then the little number 27, that's where we're going to start. I have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along as well. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whew. Some strong words from Jesus here, right? Just a quick recap. He's talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about sex. He's talking about hell. All in like a little four-verse section. This is not your clean-cut Sunday school Jesus. He is bringing the heat here. 
And because he's bringing the heat, because these words are so loaded with power, it's really critical for us to understand what this text is and what it isn't. Because these words of power can often get uh, utilized and weaponized for really unhealthy things in our lives. They can often get abused by the church. They have been abused by the church. And so we want to do a really good job of not weaponizing this text and simply coming to it, understanding well, what is Jesus inviting us into? What's the new life that he's drawing us towards? This sermon that he's preaching here, where this teaching is located, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the largest cohesive block of teaching that we have of Jesus's in the Gospels. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about how to participate in the reunifying of heaven and earth, how we can participate in what Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven, which he said is his entire goal coming to earth, is to bring the kingdom of heaven and restore the broken earth and invite us into that restored unity. Which means that his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are invitations to us to live into a more full and free picture of our humanity, a more full and free picture of what we were made for. And that means that this actually can speak to every single one of us in this room, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journeys. If you're someone who's been following Jesus for decades, these are words that remind us of what that following of Jesus really looks like, and we can help reorient ourselves. And if you're someone who's just trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in your life right now, you're asking questions and maybe Jesus uh, makes you curious, but you're not quite sure exactly what it looks like, these words are an invitation to you, to a transformed picture of your humanity. And that transformed picture involves sexual desire, because that's part of our humanity. And he starts by quoting something in verse 27. He quotes one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. He says, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. In our culture, we don't love the words, you shall not, because we're people who love to be empowered and love to make our own choices, and we don't love to be constrained or contained. But I think it's important to understand, whenever we hear, you shall not, there's always an implicit, you shall, underneath. Whenever you hear, you shall not, there's always an implicit, you shall, that's lying underneath. Think about these commands, for instance. You probably heard at some point, if you have siblings growing up from your parents, you shall not punch your sibling. Probably a command. I heard that often. Maybe you guys were better people than me, but I heard that often. What your parents are really saying there is you shall care for your sibling's well-being, and you shall do that by not punching them. We hear in our culture, and sometimes if you're pulled over by a police officer, you shall not drive recklessly. You shall not do that. What they're really saying is you shall care for the well-being of your fellow drivers, and you shall do that by not driving recklessly. Friends, you shall not always implies a you shall Jesus is not giving us a, a rule for behavior modification that says get all of these things in line by not doing them. He's actually inviting us into a bigger you shall. And so if we're to understand his commands in this passage, we've got to remember what the you shall is. We've got to remember the life that he's inviting us into before we look at restrictions. And I think that's really essential, especially in the church when we talk about sex. Many people who grew up in the church were taught that sex is largely this taboo thing, and they were only ever told the you shall nots. Don't do this, don't look at this, don't be with this sort of person. And when sex is taught that way, when intimacy is taught that way, it can kind of imply that sex is a bad thing or something to keep away or taboo. And then many people are taught that after it's been taboo for most of their lives, when they get married, they can flip a switch. It's a green light. Sex is great now, all of a sudden. And I know a lot of people that that's really jarring for. I know people who've been through really rocky seasons in their marriages whose marriages have fallen apart because they were taught that sex was this terrible thing their whole lives, and then all of a sudden, they're free to do it, and well, it's not really something that they know how to enter into well. And so our conversations about sex should always start with the you shall, not the you shall not. 
Our first question is never, what life is Jesus keeping me from? Our first question is, what sort of life is Jesus calling me to? And to know the you shall of Jesus' command here, we've got to start actually at the start of this story. And not just because I said so, but because Jesus said so. Later in Matthew 19, when he's being pressed on the question of sexuality and marriage, he says, well, go back to the start of things. That's the picture that I'm working with. And at the start of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God creates the entire cosmos to work harmoniously together. Everything has its role. And when everything plays its role, it's this perfect picture of community and love and peace. And in that story, man and woman are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And they serve as uh, partners with God to bring about flourishing, to bring about life in the world. And that flourishing is wide-ranging. For instance, God says, take care of the planet. Steward the resources that I've given you. Don't soil your nest. Take really, really good care of all of these things that I've given you. They're good. And it's your job to cultivate them. Part of that cultivation involves being creators as well. We are made in the image of God, which means we're sub-creators. We partner with God in creating and bringing new life and flourishing into the world, cultivating life. And one part of cultivating life is a direct command from God. He says, be fruitful and multiply. You guys are all adults in the room. How do humans multiply? How do humans multiply? They have sex. Yes. The start of the Bible is a glorious stamp of approval on sex. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is telling us. And more than this, it's not just a stamp of approval on sex. It's actually a stamp of approval on attraction. When man sees the woman for the first time, he talks about how ravishing she is and how beautiful their intimacy is together. This isn't a prude picture of sexuality at all. You guys, the harmony of God's original creation involved a naked man and a naked woman seeing and knowing each other. And committing to one another in beautiful intimacy. The text goes on in Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about how they were naked and unashamed. And that's bringing together a couple different parts of our humanity there. Naked in our bodies, but unashamed in our souls and our beings. The Bible's implying that it's not just a bodily act when you're physically intimate with someone. It involves your soul. It involves the deepest parts of who you are. A naked body means a naked soul in intimacy with another person. To be fully known, to be fully vulnerable with them. Sex is the most comprehensively vulnerable experience that we know of as humans. It's a way of presenting myself fully before someone else, which means it's really, really important to protect that vulnerability. If it's the most vulnerable space that we enter into as humans, it's really important to make sure that we can enter in safely. And that's why Christians affirm sex inside marriage, and Jesus affirms sex inside marriage as a really important thing, because marriage provides the structure that gives safety for that vulnerability to occur, for intimacy to be really well lived out. And sexual health can only come when both parties devote themselves to one another in lifelong committed love, knowing that that other person isn't going to skip out on them, that that vulnerability won't be ripped or torn. And we, by the way, know the negative consequences of vulnerability being ripped or torn in our lives. We know the pain of divorce or breakups. When you've given yourself freely to someone and they leave, it's traumatic, it's heartbreaking, it's some of the hardest stuff we go through. The Bible is intentionally giving us a picture that says we need a, a structure that can protect that vulnerability. So sex inside marriage for Christians, it's not a prude thing, it's a protection of intimacy and vulnerability with another person. And if you ever hear the message in our culture that Christians are prude about sex, if you hear that, if you start to buy into that, read the Bible and invite people to read the Bible with you because that's not the picture that's in these pages. 
And if Genesis 1 and 2 isn't enough, skip forward to Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, 19. A father is advising his son to commit fully to his wife, and he says this. May her breasts satisfy you at all times. May you be intoxicated always by her love. Nothing prude going on there, friends. Proverbs 5 is not a prude passage. There's an entire book in the Old Testament that is erotic love poetry written about a man and a woman who are married, and it is spicy stuff. You guys, the Christian picture of sex, it's not prude, it's not condemning it, it's not calling it taboo. It's actually giving the most robust and deep picture that we have in our world. Because it manages not to condemn sex, but to celebrate it. And then to celebrate it without creating a culture of usury of other bodies, of the use of the other person as a means to my end. That's the Christian picture of sex. It affirms the profound importance of protecting our bodies and our souls. It's comprehensive in a world that needs that sort of ethic. And so when the Bible and Jesus mention you shall not in Matthew 5 here, remember that they're saying you shall. Namely, you shall have sex as a self-giving intimacy to one another in the binding commitment of marriage as devoted partners for the sake of mutual flourishing. That's the transformed picture of humanity that Jesus is giving us. That's the transformed picture of sexuality that Jesus is giving us here. And our world is longing for that. Remember the words from that Washington Post article. People are longing for listening, for care, for mutual responsibility. Those are baked into what the Bible is talking about here. So that's the you shall. But the reality is, Jesus is saying you shall not. He is bringing up some things that we should probably avoid, and that he says are stumbling blocks or hurdles on our way to healthy relational intimacy. And it's important to understand those. After quoting the command, you shall not commit adultery, in verse 27, he moves on in verse 28 to turn us inward. Did you catch that? He says, here's the command about an outward thing, but now you've got to pay really close attention to what's going on in here. And there's a really implicit and subtle move he's making there that's affirming that we as humans are not just bodies without souls, and we're not just souls trapped in bodies, we're both. And that means that any holistic health in our humanity and in our relational intimacy has to involve the outward and the inward. What goes on in here matters for what goes on out there. And the way that I see the other in here affects that I, the way that I treat the other out there. That's a crucially important thing that Jesus is bringing up. He's saying, pay attention to what's going on in your heart. And he makes it clear here that doing whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, so long as we have consent, well, that's not the way to true life. That's not the way to true relational intimacy. And in many ways, that undermines the sacrificial self-giving love that we're called for. Because there are parts of our hearts that need to be dealt with Parts of our inner beings that need to be uh, treated. And there's two words that Jesus brings up in this passage that I think are helpful guides for us on what needs to be treated in our humanity, what can be hurdles to healthy relational intimacy. They're both actually two L words, so easy to remember. The first is uh, the word lust. And oftentimes when we think of lust, we often conflate it or equate it with attraction. We think that lust is attraction. And many times we're taught that if you're attracted to someone, you need to avoid uh, as much as you can, exposure to that attraction because that will lead to lust. But the word lust is much deeper than attraction. He's not actually talking specifically about that here. The word he's using, it's actually the same word that's used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, for the word covet in the Ten Commandments. He's talking about a covetous heart, which means it's not strictly about attraction. It actually has to do with longing to possess and living to possess another person for my sake. 
Lust involves taking someone else and using them as a means to my end, coveting that person. And oftentimes, when we do this, we justify whatever means we use in order to accomplish that end. A quick example for you. Imagine uh, that you're uh, getting home from work one day, and you had a really long day. You actually had to skip lunch because the work was so busy. And so you've got like seven, eight hours since your last meal. Your stomach is gurgling as you pull into the driveway. You're a little angry at this point, right? You're just like, I, I need some food. So you hop out of your car, you walk towards your door, and all of a sudden your nostrils fill with a delicious smell of barbecue. Somebody in your neighborhood is cooking something. Your uh, mouth starts to water, and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to take a look around. Like, <laughs> where's this coming from? And sure enough, you see your neighbor Bob across the street. Bob's like, hey, neighbor, doing some barbecuing. And right away, that hunger is not a bad thing. A hunger is actually a good thing. It's something that is meant to be satisfied. It's a desire that is okay and good. But what we do with that hunger is really important. If you walked across the street, said hey to Bob, punched him in the face, and stole all of his barbecue, that's a problem. That's not the right way to express your hunger. That would be using your neighbor as a means to your end. And if we say that that's a bad thing with cooked meat, why don't we say it's a bad thing with human bodies? Jesus is telling us not to view other people as products to be used for our benefit alone. And when he uses this word to describe our sexual appetites, he's calling out that sex is not a consumer good. It's often viewed that way in our culture, but it's not a consumer good. And when we make it a consumer good, we take that comprehensive, holistic, body-soul unity that we were made for, and we smash it with the hammer of self-indulgence. That's what happens when we use another person's body for our ends. And that's why Jesus' words are so radical in our hookup culture today. Because hookup culture assumes a consumeristic view of sex. That sex is about satisfying my desires. And that takes place in a largely consumeristic culture, right? It's no accident that in America, hookup culture has become prevalent. We're a very consumeristic culture, right? There's a reason you have customized ads on your social media accounts that know exactly what you want before you want them. Because they're assuming that you're a consumer and that your job is to consume whatever products we put out there for you. That's why convenience stores like to be open 24-7, because 24-7, we're consumers. We live with the notion that consumption will lead to satisfaction. That's why you face five to 10,000 ads a day, depending on what you're viewing and where you're walking. Walter Brueggemann, a theologian, puts it this way in his book, In Other Kingdom. He says, the culture flows from the assumption that the accumulation of commodities will make us safe and happy. And that consumerism has leaked its way into our understanding of sexual intimacy. And so we've developed an app that's worth billions of dollars, where we literally swipe right or swipe left on someone based on how much they please us. So we have an industry right now worth over $17 billion in the US that says you can get whatever image and whatever picture you want when you want it via a computer or internet for free. That's why we sell our fast food and cars with images of mostly naked women. Hookup culture is only possible if sex is viewed as a consumer good. And Jesus is telling us that that is not what sex is. It's so much deeper. It's so much more robust than that. And when we treat it that way, it takes image-bearing people created by God and breaks them down into little products to be objectified. And so that's the first thing we see. When Jesus talks about lust here, he's talking about the usury of other persons for our benefit, the coveting of other persons. And the second L word that he uses here is looks. 
Someone who looks with lust, he says. And we have a little bit of trouble with that word in English because look can mean a lot of different things. It can mean a short passing glance. It can mean a difference in perspective, right? I look at something differently than you do. Jesus is talking here about a prolonged gazing. Again, a, a usury of another person in our mind's eye or in our heart. And remember, Jesus is not shaming physical attraction. He's not talking about attraction here. Attraction is a good thing. Just go read Song of Songs. It's a good thing. What he is saying is that in that attraction, if in our heart and mind we start to use the other person as an object for my purposes, then, well, then it gets out of whack. And I think the reality is, in our culture, we know really well what Jesus means when he says look, or when he uses this word, look, here. In fact, we know it so well, we've memed it. You guys familiar with this meme? Cheating boyfriend meme? This is all over the internet. There's some pretty funny examples if you want to go look them up. The cheating boyfriend meme is a great example of what Jesus is talking about. It's the usury of another person for my benefit at the expense of everyone involved. And by the way, it is at the expense of everyone involved here. So first, it's obviously at this woman's expense. <laughs> you, you see her face and she is not happy about this, right? She is seeing him objectify another woman at her expense. Not great there. And sacrificing some sort of commitment, right? He's at least a boyfriend and maybe a husband. We don't know because we don't see rings. Actually, it looks like he doesn't have a ring. So, boyfriend. But it also harms the woman who's walking away in the red or pink shirt here. Because she has no idea how her body is being used by this other person. And has no say over whether he will be able to dispose of her body when he sees fit in his mind's eye. He is getting to use her body how he sees fit. It's unhealthy for her. And it's also unhealthy for the man. Because he is robbing himself of deep, abiding intimacy with this person that he can commit himself fully to. And he's wasting it now in a moment of fleeting pleasure that he'll have to keep getting over and over and over because it's not meant to satisfy him in this way. He's disrupting the harmony of everyone involved. And so when Jesus brings up that we shouldn't look with lust, he's saying we shouldn't prolong our gaze at other people to objectify them in our heads and our hearts. That's an unhealthy use of them and a degradation of us. And that, again, challenges our hookup culture today, because hookup culture thrives off of image-based sexuality, objectifying sexuality. Hookup culture says, by and large, that it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. Okay to look, just don't touch. Objectification is fine in our own minds and our own hearts, so long as it's free from being lived out in one way or another. And that leads us to create an adult film industry. Right now, in the US alone, 2.5 billion emails are sent every day containing explicit images of human bodies. Every second, there are 28,000 people perusing explicit videos and images online. We assume, in hookup culture, that we just need to be able to satiate our desires. And as long as we're looking, as long as we're not touching, it's fine. And here's what's wild, friends. In that sort of culture, when we see bodies used as tools for our own pleasure, it actually leads to really unhealthy consequences. And science is actually starting to back this up. Science is backing up for us now what Jesus warned us about thousands of years ago. It's revealing that pornography and other sexually explicit images have devastating effects on our minds and on our hearts. There's three different ways that this is true. First, pornography and sexually explicit images change our brain chemistry. There's a multitude of studies, and I can send them to you if you're interested in learning more that conclude, these studies conclude that depression, anxiety, and body image issues for men and women increase exponentially in our culture when pornography use is prevalent. 
in a culture going through a mental health crisis right now, pornography is exacerbating the issue. There's a second way that pornography hurts us. It changes our relationships. Research is now showing that looking at explicit images on a screen or objectifying bodies through a screen actually creates neural pathways in our brain that prevent us from experiencing true intimacy with another human. Intimacy is now connected to a digital screen, and it leads to exorbitant levels of dopamine in the brain, to the point where people no longer, oftentimes, if they keep it up, can experience intimacy with another real human. They have to go to a screen. A great example of this uh, throughout history, Hugh Hefner, you guys familiar with Hugh Hefner? The guy who founded the Playboy Empire? He was kind of touted as this great expression of sexual liberation. He lived with many women throughout his life. He had this ma mansion where really anything goes. So long as both people are consenting, anything goes. And we encouraged his behavior by buying his magazines in our culture, by uh, funding this major empire. And just a few years ago, he passed away. And there's a few women that put together a, a memoir of what it was like to live with Hugh. And over and over again, these women expressed that Hugh Hefner, especially in the latter half of his life, was no longer able to feel intimacy with another human because he had been so calloused by looking at screens and by objectification of other bodies. Real relational intimacy was impossible. Real connection was impossible for him. His soul was calloused. You guys know when you get a callus on your finger or on your foot and you like touch something and you can't quite feel it, right? It's not quite your skin. You're not quite experiencing it. That's what happens to our souls when we use other bodies for our ends. And the third way that sexually explicit images harm us is that they increase sexual violence. Increased porn usage is directly linked to sex abuse, sex trafficking, and negative use of women in our world. And that's actually one major reason that Jesus directs these commands at men. Did you catch that? He's not saying that women don't have an issue with lust or covetousness. What he is saying is that throughout history, there's predominantly been one gender that's harmed the other gender. And we need to make sure that we are protecting women. In a world where women are often abused for this exact thing, we need to make sure that those spaces are protected. That's what he's calling out here. And so Jesus and science are warning us of the terrible consequences of a hookup culture that encourages physical or mental objectification of other bodies for our benefit. When we treat the body of another person as disposable, it hurts everyone involved. So what's the solution? Right? What does Jesus say the solution is? It's actually pretty simple. Just cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. You're good to go, right? It's actually a really simple command. So why are Christians not walking around with one hand and one eye? Why isn't that happening in our world? Because he didn't mean this literally, right? He's using a rabbinical technique that was common in his day called hyperbole or exaggeration. And he's trying to communicate the urgency of this issue. His language is telling us don't delay in changing things. This is a, a really, really important thing. If he actually wanted us to remove body parts, friends, I can think of some others he could recommend that would be better. I'll just leave it at that. He's obviously turning us back towards our hearts. That's the whole point here. But he is saying that there's actions you can take to protect your heart. He's saying with great urgency, as F. Dale Bruner, the Matthew commentator, says, desperate cuts require desperate cures. Desperate cuts require desperate cures. So in your life, right now, what's your eye or your hand? What's the practice or relationship or assumption that you have that's well, causing you to covet, to objectify. I don't know what it is for everybody. It can be a lot of different things. It can be a phone, it can be a computer, it can be a gym membership, it can be a relationship. It's a lot of different things that can create this sort of objectification. Whatever it is for you, friends, Jesus is saying with great urgency, cut it out of your life. 
Get rid of it because it's leading you to destruction. It's leading you to pain. It's leading you to a less holistic picture of your humanity. And that's why he mentions hell here in this passage, which I know hell can be a complicated subject for us in our day. But I actually think the hell he's talking about here is pretty obvious to us. The hell of sexual abuse is evident all over our world. The hell of objectification of other bodies, it's clear to us. Hell is a hookup culture where there's no limits on sex and everyone is relationally miserable. Those statistics I brought up in the Washington Post, that's hell when it comes to relationships. Hell is child pornography. Hell is Hugh Hefner unable to feel intimacy with another human at all in his life. Hell is sex trafficking. All of those things are extensions of the objectification of bodies for our purposes. All of those things are extensions of what Jesus is warning us of here. And the consequences are way worse, friends, if you continue in that path than if you're just to cut those things out of your life. Way, way worse. And it's way better to just cut them off. And so Jesus is telling us with great urgency here, friends, other humans are not disposable. No other human that you interact with is simply disposable. We're not bodies that we just pursue however we see fit, whenever we see fit. And any hookup culture that leads us to remove sex, to separate sex from lifelong vulnerable commitment to the other, what's reducing the image of God in those people. It's creating in our world a culture of usury. And it's not hard to see. It's all around us all the time. And as we reflect on that in our own lives, in our own world, I think it's really important to remember that Jesus here is not condemning you, friends. If he was condemning you, he wouldn't have said these things. What he's doing is inviting you into a transformed picture. He's saying, return back to me. Return to a healthy picture of sexuality, wherever you are in your life right now. Come back. Because I have something so much better, so much more holistic than what the world gives you. Jesus says these words because he wants to see dry deserts of shame turned into rushing rivers of self-giving love and life. He wants to see communities like this church and like Hope Women's Center healed to health. Many of the women who encountered uh, the, the workers in this space come with stories of real, terrible abuse, of objectification. He's longing for those women to be healed. He's longing for this community to be a community that heals those things. And that's a message that our world desperately needs, a message that our hookup culture desperately needs. So here at Midtown, in this little place, let's become a people who are committed to saying no one else is disposable. No other body is disposable. I can't use you for my ends. That's a reduction of you and a reduction of me. And let's commit instead to self-giving love, to giving ourselves away to others, wherever we are in our dating life, wherever we are in our married life. Let's stop objectifying one another. And let's commit to saying none of us is disposable. In a world of disposability, that's a radical, radical message. Let's pray.